thousands by kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Hello and welcome out there. You're listening to Love That Album. I think we're up to episode 12. And uh, uh, this time I've got uh, joining me as guest host for the show, uh, regular contributor, Jeff Smith. Good evening, Jeff. Hi, Morris. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. Yourself? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, now, for um, tonight's episode, I doubly appreciate your efforts because we'd come to an agreement on doing a Suzanne Vega album. The Suzanne Vega album that we spoke of was Solitude Standing. And after you went back to your record collection, you realised that this wasn't the album that you thought it was. No, that, that completely confused it with her previous, her first album, mm. um, Suzanne Vega, in fact. Yeah. I, I, I just uh, got it into my head that it was Solitude Standing, and you know it wasn't, so I went off and I got Solitude Standing and I listened to it. Right, so um, in fact, you're... Um... Uh, this will actually sort of prove to be very interesting because you know this is an album I've long lived with, mm. and I'll, I look forward to um, hearing like a fresh perspective. And I want to do a lot more of this over the year with uh, other people where you know they're picking something that they know and love, and I'll come into it fresh. So, um, so I think tonight will work out very well. Um, but yeah, thanks for coming into something uh, you know that you weren't so. Uh, necessarily yeah. well versed in before this um but before we talk about uh, suzanne vega's uh solitude standing album uh we always like to open up the show uh talking about albums that we've been listening to and even before we do that um the the big music news of interest to you and i bruce springsteen wrecking Indeed. ball yeah let's um, talk about this yeah, a new, a, new, a new album due in early March, I believe. Mm, mm. And uh, although, mind you, having a look on the web at uh, the track listings, at least two of the songs are, um, are uh, one's, one's a little bit old and one's very old. Um, there's uh, uh, Wrecking Ball, which you heard Bruce do in New York a few years ago, I believe. Yeah, a couple of a few years back um, at the the last Giant Stadium stand, um, Wrecking Ball opened each of those shows. It was a song written for the uh, for Giant Stadium, where uh, Bruce and the E Street Band over the years have seen many successes and you know many glorious uh, achievements. Um, and I think you know quite sad to see the back of the old place. Um, mm. They've built a brand new one, of course, which is you know bigger, better, and all singing, all dancing. But uh, we'll wait and see if he he, he does any dates there. Mm-hmm. And um, the other the other song, I think, is Land of Hope and Dreams, which I'm pretty sure might have been like on the first tour that um, uh, the E Street Band sort of after they reformed. Yeah, the one that was sort of called loosely the Reunion Tour. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was played as the show closer on that uh, on that tour. Um, I mean, I think it personally, I think it's a great song. Oh, it's uh, a brilliant song. I, I remember hearing it like uh, on on a 
gazillion bootlegs and you know, mm. back in the day and, and I, i'm really pleased that he's finally decided to um, put this down officially yeah it'll be interesting to see how it sounds in the in the studio um mm. i mean it worked really well as a live track i mean some of the bootleg versions that i heard maybe went on a bit long but um you know it'd certainly be interesting to hear what what it sounds like with the band in the studio and well the, the sort of new look band as well yeah 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 well so there's uh well we've already uh, i think the last the last album, Working on a Dream, uh, was already noted for the uh, absence of Danny Federici, and this time we've got the missing, um, the missing shoes of Clarence Clemens. Yeah, big shoes. Um, yeah, so yeah, it'll be, it'll be very, very interesting, and I think the, the tour kicks off in the States not that long from the, the release date of the album, I believe. So um, yeah, it looks like it'll be a, an exciting year for us Springsteen fans. Mm, mm. But will he make it back down under? Well, there's no dates at the moment. Mm. But you know, as usual, they're calling it a world tour, but it's a it's a world tour of North America and Europe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the world is the northern hemisphere after all. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, so um, that's uh, Bruce Juice for uh, this episode. So let's get on to uh, what else we've been listening to. So what's been in your CD player, turntable, iPod? music play of choice um i think it's the last since the last time we spoke i've uh, i've been extremely busy i've not been listening to too much in the way of albums i've been listening to the odd song here and there um you know bits of mixes in, in the ipod shuffle when i've been uh, on the way to and from work but you know, a couple of the the whole albums that i have listened to i've, mm. I've gone back a bit and uh <clears throat> excuse me i've been listening to uh which I'm hopeless with album titles, which makes me a really good candidate to be on something like this. Um, Jackson Brown, I know you're not you're not the biggest fan. I've been listening to his Lawyers in Love album. Mm. Well, uh, actually, I will be having something to say about Jackson Brown in a couple of minutes, but go on. Um, and the Gaslight Anthems uh, most recent offering, which is uh, American Slang. Mm. And uh, they've also uncovered some sessions that they did of covers, including uh, Baba O'Reilly by The Who, and uh, there's a couple others in there which are get the gaslight anthem treatment, which are uh, you know quite good, quite Mm. interesting. Um, Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned there, um, Jackson Brown, um, an artist who I uh, well, he's he's only just sort of uh, released. Um, I think it's his debut album, unless he's released maybe like an EP or something somewhere along the line. But uh, this came out late 2011. Uh, the um, the name of the uh, guy is called Jonathan Wilson. Now, I think I first heard about him when he had uh, a track on the, the CD, the bonus giveaway CD that they put out with uh, that fantastic English music magazine called The Word. They put out a CD every month with you know, 15 new songs from uh, new albums doing the rounds, pretty much like, I think, Uncut occasionally do. Yeah. Um, and he has an album out called Gentle Spirit. And uh, the, the music, that this, this is a guy whose um, head is very much in late 60s, uh, I hate to use the word psychedelia. There's something of it there, but it's very gentle psychedelia. Um, it sort of sounds like a bit of a cross between uh, the more poppy period of Simon and Garfunkel, uh, Sid Barrett era, mm. Pink Floyd guitar stylings, 
uh, Elliot Smith vocals, Smile era Beach Boys, um, and yeah, some psychedelic moments in there. And why I bring up Jackson Brown is because I believe he's actually a very big fan of Jonathan's. And huh? I think uh, I, I think I read somewhere that there was some connection either uh, Jonathan Wilson had um, supported uh, Jackson Brown on at, at some concerts or that the two of them collaborated for, for some songs in a show or something like that. But I know there's a connection there. But he, he definitely has um, something of that melodic late 60s, early 70s West Coast sound. And I know he also, just so you know what we're talking about here, there, there's, um, I believe he also uh, supported Crosby, Stills and Nash on some shows there so okay a bit of a bit of a mixture there but heavy on the melody um i, yep. I think is the um uh the point i'm trying to make gentle and melodic but but still of some significance it sounds like you might be worth checking out mm, yeah gentle spirit jonathan wilson lovely album um look like you well, sorry, I was going to say, like you, I've not been listening to much, but not because I've been busy. In fact, I've only just returned to work in the last week and a half. In fact, I, I spent more time over the school holidays, you know, just doing stuff with my kids. If you're listening in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, here in the Southern Hemisphere, we've just, uh, the, the, the kids are going back after a lovely summer holiday. And, um, you know, a few of us who have been fortunate enough to take time off. I've been doing summary things, so I've been doing more uh, a lot of film watching and other activities with my kids rather than listening to too many albums. So, yeah, like you, not been listening to too much, but not because I've been busy, at least not for for work anyway. But one other thing that I have been um, playing a fair bit, it's I don't know whether to say this is uh, whether he's a musician who's very funny or a comedian who knows how to write a song, and I'm talking about Kinky Friedman. Um, <laughs> Uh, who's also uh, a great detective, comedy co uh, detective writer, um, uh, written some really hilariously uh, great detective novels. He casts himself as uh, the lead character in his own books, but you know, also known back from the early 70s as being um, a country and western singer and songwriter with his band, the Texas Jew Boys, uh, and also played in uh, Bob Dylan's band, Circa... Um, I think the Hard Rain tour. Uh, oh, okay. So, um, but yeah, very funny guy. So he put out this uh, album he hadn't recorded in a long time. He got together with one of the uh, the Texas Jew boys, uh, guy, a character called Little Juford, and they put out an album called Classic Snatches from Europe. And as I said, this is, I haven't made up my mind whether this is a comedy album with some songs on it or a songwriter's album with a whole lot of comedy on it, but it's certainly uh, well worth your one. I've listened to this stacks of time and it still makes me laugh. Very, very funny and some great songs. Uh, very politically incorrect. So um, if you're offended by, uh, if you're offended easily, um, then maybe give this a bit of a, a bit of a miss. But um, personally, I find it hilarious. It sounds uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'll... Um, I'll point, I'll point this your way, Jeff. <laughs> Very yeah, funny. Appreciate that. Um, all right. So, look, I think what we'll do now is uh, have a little bit of a break and um, come back and uh, have a bit of a discussion about uh, the career hitherto of uh, Suzanne Vega. And uh, later on, we'll talk about her second album, Solitude Standing. So, uh, for the moment, we'll take a bit of a break. 
Uh, Morris and Jeff, you're listening to Love That Album. American Dream, Dusty Rose. I'm coming to you live and in living color. Speak to you, the American people. A podcast called Silver and Gold Daddy. And you know that the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, knows how to bring home the gold, Daddy. And just like Henry Silva. Sticking Barbara Boucher's head inside a sow hanging from the ceiling. Silver and gold will stick it to you. Stick it to your ears. Stick it to your mouth, your eyes, your nose, daddy. And all points in between, they'll take your listening pleasure and stick it between a sow's caucus hanging from the ceiling, daddy. Silver and gold. We talk about movies and sh- Find us on iTunes or silverandgold.com. And we're back from break. Morris and Jeff on Love That Album, the podcast dedicated to albums that we love, uh, music that we love, and just talking about it in some sort of depth. Tonight's uh, artist, Suzanne Vega. Jeff, what was the first thing you recall hearing? I think probably like everyone else, the first thing I ever recall hearing by Suzanne Vega was probably Marlena on the Wall. Mm. Um, I forget what year it came out. It would have been 82, 83 maybe, something like that. Um, Let me look at Wikipedia. And, and just, uh, just, you know how when you hear a song and it just you just sort of get it and it, it, and it gets you whichever way around you want to look mm. at it. Um, I just thought that just that just works. Whether it's this construction or the voice or the lyrics, it just I thought, yeah. And you know, went out and and bought the album uh, off the back of that hearing that one song, which for me was quite rare because in those days, you know, I, I really didn't have a lot of money. I still don't, obviously, but <laughs> you know, I, I went out and bought that bought that album off off one song and, and didn't hear any of the others before I did so, and you know, took it home and, and sort of liked the whole lot and. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why I sort of lost my way with Suzanne Vega because I liked her a lot. You know, um, I just I guess I never got into never got around to buying anything later on. Mm. No, like, I yeah. Actually, I, I've got notes here. It was 1985. Oh, um, yeah. And um, yeah, look, uh, like you, Melina on the Wall was the first song I remember hearing. We had a um, uh, an all night rock music show which you know i know in america you know who's been living with mtv and 24-hour music tv stations you know, an all-night rock show was probably you know no big deal but you know certainly down here it was i don't remember the name of the show this is well before the abc here started showing rage um i can't remember but it was on channel 10 so for commercial television to be hosting friday and saturday night all night uh, music videos. Oh, John Torv's music video it was called. That's right. It was quite a brave thing at the time. So I think I was sitting up one Saturday night doing um, doing some study for for uni or something, and um, uh, I, I kept the music, kept the TV on in the background with all these film clips going and looking up every now and a while. And 
Marlena on the wall came on and just thought, wow, this is you know beautiful because you know the, the the landscape was dominated at the time with you know, either very rocky sort of bands or you know be they corporate rock or just you know, out and out you know, rock that I liked as well, but there, there wasn't anything that was uh, gentle that was pervading the uh, mainstream landscape, and um, yeah, that's why that song caught my attention. Yeah, there was a lot of rubbish around at that time, and mm. I think I think more people like Stock Aitken and Waterman starting to reach their heights around then as well. And sorry, their names are not allowed to be mentioned on this uh, particular podcast, Jeff. All right, well, I certainly won't say Rick Astley then either. No, no, no listen, you're, you're skating on thin ice here. <laughs> uh, as long as you speak about him in a disparaging tone, then that's okay. Yes, yeah, so the dreadful Rick Astley. <laughs> yeah. Or, or can, can I add a bit of MC Hammer in there for anyone? No, no, you can't touch that. <laughs> Glad we got that. Glad we got that. And he, he's been a bit of a hit around our house the last couple of weeks. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, anyway, can we back to back to more serious matters? Please, Suzanne Vega. Oh, okay. Um, so yes, yeah, so that that album, um, self-titled album, came out in nineteen eighty-five, and um, uh, it was interesting that it had associated with it uh, as producer uh, Lenny Kay, who was um, uh, well known for being uh, the guitarist in uh, Patti Smith's band. Yep. And also for having put together one of my favorite albums of all time um the uh compilation nuggets which is um for those you know one or two of you who haven't heard of it or haven't heard it uh is um a compilation of uh i, I suppose garage rock and roll from the 60s um a lot of bands which were either one hit wonders but certainly not deserving to be and uh, you know Lenny Kaye was something of an archivist, and put together. I think at the time it might have been a double vinyl album of uh, these gloriously forgotten songs that he really loved, but you know they didn't deserve to be forgotten. And I don't know how many years back it was now, but uh, Rhino Records not only went and re-released the original Nuggets, but they found about another sixty or seventy songs wow. uh, and made a four CD box set with absolutely. A beautiful booklet detailing every song, every artist, um, and the songs really—they you know, were remastered and just came up sounding a treat. And there's been a, a son of Nuggets and a you know a, a children of Nuggets, you know, talking about garage bands of today. But yeah, so Lenny K was responsible for that first. Yeah, a whole, a whole lot of good stuff on there. The um, oh, I'm trying to trying to scrape in my memory here. The things like the electric prunes. Yes, and, yes, that's right. Uh, the blues magoos and things. Like but yeah, you know, but, but electric prunes and the blues magoos are positively, you know, household names compared to some of the acts uh, on that. There's a, a whole heap of bands I'd never heard of. But um, you know, shame on me. And then there was Rokey Erickson's band, the Thirteenth Story Elevators, Thirteenth Floor Elevators. <laughs> yeah, I oh, have yeah. I got that right? Um, yeah, that's in, that's in floor element. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whose song "You're Going to Leave Me" opens up uh, the film "High Anxiety," where we see John Cusack listening listening to that song as he's bemoaning about um, you know, yet another woman has gone and left him, and <laughs> uh, uh, you know, but you know, rock. You know, he's obsessed with pop music, but. You know, 
pop music is dangerous and uh, people watch violent films, but no one ever complains about um, uh, the, the harm, potential harmful effect that rock music can have on you. And he's listening <laughs> to this song through headphones just as his girlfriend's walking out the door. In fact, we even have a snatch of uh, that monologue in the uh, Love That Album opening theme. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, that digression, that was um, uh, that, that song is another one of the gems on the Nuggets uh, box set that uh, Lenny Kay, producer of Suzanne Vega's uh, first album, um, put together. Um, so, I mean, I, I remember, you know, she struck me at the time after listening to that first album as someone who uh, had been influenced uh, by Lou Reed. I mean, her, she sounds, if nothing else, as a female version of uh, Lou Reed. What do you reckon? Um, I think there's some some similar similar qualities. They certainly come from a, a similar sort of, shall we say, art school type background. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just I just thought it it was so simplistic, but it you know it just worked. I, it's, I can't, really can't explain it. I've, you know, obviously went back and listened to the the original album again as well as part of doing the the, the solitude standing thing and yes. Songs on there like you know the Queen and the Soldier and uh, Cracking and Small Blue Thing, um, they're just they're just so simple as to almost be throwaway and meaningless. But then when you read them again or hear them again, you sound like well, that's really clever, you know. Yeah. And I don't know there's many there's many songwriters that can actually do that, you know. Keep it keep it so simple yet make it so complex. If that makes any sense whatsoever, it makes it makes complete sense, and I think you've basically gone and captured in one sense what her whole career has been about because you find songs like that on every album which really do sound like there's um, uh, only a few chords to them and you know anyone could have put that together and yet there's uh, there'll be some strange augmentation there or or a, stra a strange combination of chords. It's not your standard A, G, C. They they sound simple, but she's just going to put some little spin. So, yeah, what she's... Even though she's musically gone and done different things production-wise, and I'd certainly say that she's uh, moved on in some ways from uh, from that... the, the, the very uh, simplistic production style of that first album... Yet I think the, um, uh, the the what motivated her to write songs in the first place has never really left her because those uh, I, I think her modus operandi really has been the same even if you know she's gone and added electronic noises as she has on albums like ninety nine point nine Fahrenheit degrees and she's or she's gone and added a full band and sounded a little bit more slick on albums like Solitude Standing but there's a heart there and there's still that simplicity that you mentioned. Mm, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I obviously haven't listened to anything beyond solitude standing yet. Um, so I, you know, I can't really comment on, on what she's done with some of the more complex stuff later, but yeah, I think, I think we're probably, we're getting to the, the heart of it there that when you said about there being something different or there's something, there's some little twist in there all the time. Mm. You know, in each song, it's just going along, going la 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 la, really simple, really simple, and then there's a progression or something just happens, and you think, whoa, that was that, what, what happened there? I'm not quite sure. I'll have mm. to go and listen to that again. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll give a I'll give a quick 
uh, rundown on what she's done since Solitude Standing. Um, uh, she followed that up album up with um, an album called Days of Open Hand. <laughs> Excuse me, um, where she took um, like Solitude, uh, you know, more of a pop approach than she had on uh, the first album. I mean, it's still unmistakably her songwriting style, and and it really, I, I think, I think. Um, We'll get into this maybe a little bit more but uh, later, but um, I think she might have sort of returned to that simple style again. She's sort of gone and re-recorded a lot of her songbook over the last few albums. She's The last three albums have just been re-recordings of uh, early stuff. But um, I, I gather that the, the pop sheen that she's done on Solitude Standing and Days of Open Hand and the electronic stylings of some of the other albums... Um, really could easily be stripped back and every album could potentially sound like the first album. And yeah. that's that's not to say that she hasn't progressed because I think she's gotten a lot more confident and um, her, her lyric writing seems to me to get more and more interesting as she goes along. But musically, she could have recorded 99.9 Fahrenheit degrees with just her voice and a guitar... And you know, maybe a, a little bit of you know, tasty lead guitar in the background or something like that, and it it would have still fitted in like the first. Yeah, but, that's a, yeah, sounds good. I'm I'm not I'm not entirely sure if I will actually check out any of these one any of these ones later. I mean, I'm really not I'm really not quite sure where to go next with Suzanne Vega to tell you the truth. Well, look, I'll I'll, I'll give a quick rundown on what she did. Um, so Days of Open Hand was another pop album like uh, Solitude Standing. Uh, some nice songs, but you know, probably not one of my favourites. Um, and then she did like a real about face. She took on Mitchell Froome uh, initially as producer and then as husband um, to record 99.9 Fahrenheit Degrees. And there was still a mixture, of a little bit of folk style, but there was a lot of, I guess, what you call this industrial sound that Mitchell Froome is famous for that he put on albums like uh, Tom Waits. Uh, uh, what, what was the album? Not the Long Rider. Uh, the low, um, 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 uh, forgotten, forgotten the name. But anyway, there was a Tom Waits album that really had a lot of industrial sounds on there. Oh, I'm going to kick myself for not knowing this, and people are going to sort of stop listening to the show because they disrespect me for not remembering that. Never mind. Anyway, uh, so Mitchell Froome put his very distinct style and uh, obviously Suzanne had found that very attractive and was willing to take the risk. But in some ways, she only took half a risk because you get about two thirds of the way through the album and um, the industrial sounds are gone and she sort of you know, chickens out in the way and sort of reverts back to um, something of the uh, straight ahead pop band sound without the industrial uh, percussion and, and the uh, compressed sound that sort of pervaded for the first two thirds of the album and really it's those electronic sounds that make the more interesting part of the album it's ironic because that's normally from any other songwriter I wouldn't probably give them a, a, a second listen but um, these songs really really work she was very adventurous and full credit to both of them for making it work um, and uh, probably the highlight of the album is a song called um, In Liverpool. Uh, and I remember actually seeing her play in Melbourne 
uh, on a tour that she did to promote this album and that was certainly the concert highlight and um, uh, for me also the album highlight but really overall a, a fantastic album and if you want to be a little bit more adventurous with your Vega listening um, <laughs> then that's one to go for um, the follow-up album uh, what was a follow-up album it was called nine objects of desire uh, this is another great album also uh, with Mitchell Froome at the uh, production desk um, maybe a little less radical in um, the compression and, and uh, industrial noises and 99.9 Fahrenheit degrees was but um, uh, in some ways maybe the songs were better uh, I'll give you two highlights um, the first the first song of the album was uh, oh uh, Thank you. No, it's not in that pot. Sorry, my wife has just kind of brought me in uh, all my Tom Waits CDs but um, uh, for me to have a look over. But no, it's not in that pile. Thank you anyway. Um, a, a nice little podcasting moment there. Um, no, Nine Objects of Desire. Uh, the two highlights for me um, were uh, the, the opening songs called Birthday, Love Made Real, and it's Suzanne's ode not to motherhood which is what a lot of um song writers I, I guess tend to do but an ode or, or song about the birth process and she's she's not singing here you know I, I have this lovely child in my arms she's singing i'm giving birth and it's fucking painful um, <laughs> and and um absolutely brilliant you know it, it starts off fairly moderate and then builds up and it's very, very tense. It's got um, uh, Pete Thomas and uh, from uh, uh, Elvis Costello's Attractions on drums also with uh, American Session drummer Jerry Marotta. They have a you know dual, uh, dual drummers, which I absolutely love in a song. Um, so yeah, a, a really great album opener there. Um, and um, another album, another song on that album that I really, really love. I mean, it is, the whole album is wonderful, but um, the other highlight for me is a song called World Before Columbus, um, a beautiful ballad there where she's singing about what her life would have been like if the object of her affection wasn't there. I mean, you know, okay, you know, it seems like a fairly standard topic, but she really has a, a great way with lyrics and the song is really rich with metaphor. Um, you know, there'd be, she says, there'd be no colour. Uh, the world would be, uh, her life would be as flat as the world before Columbus, and she'd be, you know, looking off the edge into the abyss. Um, and it, it could be talking about the, the daughter that was born in the first song, perhaps. Sorry, what was that? Could she be talking about the daughter that was born in the first song? You, you know, good point. Good point. Uh, yes, that 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 could be true. Um, work, never having heard either song. You know what? In fact, I'm, I'm glad you haven't even heard the song. You brought in a new, a new um, angle for that. In fact, in fact, I probably choose to believe that because straight after she made this album, or sometime shortly after she made this album with Mitchell Froome, they divorced. So um, it'd be yeah. terrible to think that that song had no meaning for her anymore because you know, you, you know she presumably you know she's she's still uh, Ruby Froome's mother, and and there you go. The world would be flat is the world before Columbus. But yeah, absolutely gorgeous song, gorgeous lyric. Um, uh, but yeah, or, uh, and actually another song that's on there, which is really not her lovely samba field is called Caramel. And uh, if you'd seen the um, film uh, with Yuma Thurman called Songs, oh, sorry, Songs, uh, called um, 
<sighs> Something about dogs and cats. It's sort of like a female version of uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. Oh, okay. Sorry. The truth about dogs and cats. My wife, Joanne, has just gone and piped in. Thank you. Oh, she's just been bringing me Tom Waits albums, giving me the titles of films. Fantastic. I think you better hang around for this podcast, Joey. Um, I think yeah, you definitely need to have her as a guest at some stage. Uh, well, yes, I think I'm, I've actually gone and asked her about this. I'm going to have her on as a, as a guest for a show. I, I, I can't remember for which album, but I remember there, there, there was definitely an album that I had... Uh, that I had in mind and she said oh really but yeah anyway that'll come up um <laughs> so but yes uh the truth about dog and cats and uh, uh caramel appears in that so if you've seen that film then you've heard a song from uh, this album that didn't even know it um uh probably want to quickly wrap this up before we get onto solitude stand I'll just quickly mention uh there was um the follow-up album songs in red and gray which I thought was a bit nondescript some nice songs but not one of the great ones in their catalog um but then the last album that she's recorded of completely new original songs uh, was called Beauty and Crime. And by this stage, she'd left uh, A&M Records, not sure if they didn't sign her or she wanted to go elsewhere. But she recorded this one-off album for Blue Note Records, normally known for, uh, for their jazz recordings. And uh, no smart-ass comments there, please, Jeff. We know your love of jazz. Um, Probably explains why it sold about two copies. Right. Uh, well, Jeff is uh, a former correspondent of this show now. Um, uh, now, this it, it's strange. This is on the Blue Note record label, and yet there's really nothing particularly jazzy about it. I mean, you know, maybe a couple of jazz chords here and there, but it's not a jazz album. I don't know whether Blue Note are um, putting on any other pop artists. Uh, but um, anyway, Suzanne did this one album for uh, Blue Note, and it's absolutely wonderful. I'd sort of, uh, having thought Songs in Red and Grey was a bit of a, a bland album, or maybe she's lost it, but um, no, that was far from correct. This is a wonderful album. Came out, I think, about 2007, and um, you know, once again, her, her, uh, her gift of uh, lyric writing has not deserted her. Um, uh, and now, in, in a way, this album is like uh, her Night and Day, uh, the great Joe Jackson album, because um, it's a tribute to New York. Not every song specifically mentions New York in the title, but she has said that this, you know, the city of New York uh, inspired her uh, overall. And so it's it's not exactly a concept album or them, but it's a loose theme running through um, through these songs. And um, uh, the highlight of this album for me search it out on um, uh, YouTube. Uh, it's a song called Pornographer's Dream. And um, uh, it, is a, it opens up with a really great lyric. Um, uh, uh, She's a pornographer's dream, he said. I knew what he meant, but it made me imagine what kind of a dream he would have that hadn't been spent. Um, <laughs> and once again, it's, it's, a, it's a samba, and it's really... It's a nice juxtaposition here because we've got this beautiful, uh, pure music that is represented by the samba with you know, dealing with a rather sordid subject here. Um, and um, yeah, the, the music is gorgeous and the lyrics are clever. Uh, and it, that's a common theme throughout this whole album, um, as is a lot of the back catalogue. So um, yeah, look, and since then, she's just gone and released a few albums 
of um, re-recordings of her uh, back catalogue. Um, I've not listened to any of them, and I, I don't know. I mean, maybe she's a songwriter. Has, you know, she has the right to reinterpret the songs as she sees fit. But eh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm hanging out for her to record an album with new songs. Here. All right. So um, anyway, that's uh, where uh, we're up to with uh, the Suzanne Vega story. So we'll take another break um, and then come back in a minute or two to um, talk in some depth about uh, this episode's feature album, Solitude Standing. You're listening to Morris and Jeff on Love That Album. GGTMC Live for you fresh air. Big Willie and the Samurai are at your service, breaking films down and turning them around, giving recommendations that are always on point. Visit ggtmc.com for more information. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to the trash since 1977. And we're back from break. Morris and Jeff covering uh, Suzanne Vega's Solitude Standing on this episode 12 of Love That Album podcast. Um, now, I want to ask you, Jeff, because you've come to this album relatively fresh, fairly new. I presume that you'd heard uh, Luca, which was you know, the, the single that everybody knows. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely had that one. And I'd heard the Tom's Diner song. Yep, yep. Um, but other than that, I don't think I'd heard, uh, heard any of it. Um, so when I, you know, when we decided that we were going to do it on, on this podcast, um, I, I went out and I, I got it. I wouldn't say I illegally downloaded it, but I went and got it <laughs> and, and, and listened to it. And, you know, I think you should probably possibly be introducing tonight's podcast as uh, half love that album because... Uh, Perhaps one of us does and one of us doesn't. Okay, well, no, that's that's. I wouldn't say that's good, but I'm I'm glad. I like I like the idea of um, uh, being able to sort of find out what it was that you didn't like about it, as opposed to what I do love about it. So, okay, so. Um, um, I mean, when I first when I first listened to listened through to it, um, I thought, well, that's forty minutes of my life gone. Really. really? And then I thought, well, you know. I, I'm probably missing something here, uh, and I owe it to Morris for the podcast to, to, to listen again. And, you know, when I'd, when I'd listened to it again, um, I thought, no, that's an hour and 20 gone now. <laughs> apart, from, apart from two songs, uh, Luca and Gypsy. Yep. Uh, I hate that album. Oh, we're going to have to change the name of the show to... <laughs> Sort of some of some of the time we like that album, and some of the time we think it's Scheisenhausen. All right, well, I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was. I think it was dreadful or terrible or awful or anything. I just thought that's not something I ever want to hear again. Wow, that's a big, big statement. All right, okay. So let's before we sort of go song by song. Um, what was it that? made you dislike it so intensely what was it that you know that won you over so much with album number one that you thought she'd completely lost it with album number two um she's gone from 
her symbolism and, and metaphor and poetry to pretentiousness, ridiculousness, uh, cloying, annoying dullness. Uh, the Tom's Diner song for me is is just something should be done about it really I mean she should be I don't know putting a register or something but, uh, <laughs> well uh, some, something unfortunately was done about it not that I liked it but you know who was it what do they call themselves DNA TZU oh, whatever I don't know so yeah, who, yeah. who did a, a shocking rap with it yeah I mean that, and that's equally bad you know you, you, you can't take two wrongs and make a right really and I don't, I don't know what they were playing at but for me the whole the whole the album as a whole is the Suzanne Vega album that a evening class of wannabe singer songwriters would get together and make by committee mm. um, I, I, re, I really just thought it was oh it was just un, undeniably precious and trying to be too clever, you know, maybe overdoing what she did well in the first album. No, well, okay, well, look, I'll, I'll, I'll spin this around a little bit. Um, I agree that the first album had this beautiful simplicity about it, and yet, for me, deliberately, like when I discovered that this, uh, that that first album was the album that you were so familiar with, um, I couldn't bring myself to have terribly much to say although i guess i could have taken the challenge on but i thought for me the lyrics in here had more to work with i mean okay you know pretentiousness is in the eye of the beholder i don't find it you do but um but certainly i i found that you know uh, songs songs from the first album were maybe in some ways too personal like uh, today i am a small blue thing or or uh, uh, neighborhood girls, which I think is a great album closer on the first album. It's uh, it, it's her story, and I sort of felt like, oh, do I have a right to to you know, pass my comment on it? But, I mean, I guess do I have a right to comment about anyone's songs? But but I, I just sort of found maybe some of them were a little too personal for me to uh, uh, be able to have anything to say, and that's why I thought this was maybe a little bit easier. That the, the subjects were a little bit more broad. I want to. I want to, I'm definitely going to refute you. Like, we'll start off with Tom's Diner, um, and really, for me, this is simplicity in, in itself. Uh, you know, I mean, okay, it might sound like what this is is a song about that anyone could put together. You know, uh, saying I got up this morning, I had a shit, I went and ate my cornflakes, I went out to work, mm. and yet there's something far more clever about it. She has taken time. She didn't just throw a, a dart at a, a, a board full of lyrics and, and come up with this. Um, although it, 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 it's deceptively clever for me because, okay, she's singing she's singing in this song and everyone out there I'm sure has heard the lyric and okay, so they know this story about this, or this slice of life uh, of you know, this woman who gets up and also she, she makes it into uh, what's actually known as Tom's Restaurant in um, uh, the uh, Upper West Side of New York, um, uh, and, and you know she's just sort of singing about this slice of life thing. You know she goes in and she um, she uh, sits down and there's the rain that's going on out and her hair's gotten wet and she uh, shakes her umbrella and she sits down and she orders a coffee. But 
She says is all with eloquence. Tries you might, Jeff. You couldn't write something that would sound as good. Although, mind you, well, you're, you're debating because you're saying that this doesn't sound good. But to me, you know, it's it's clever. She's, there's no rhyming couplets, and I know that that was she probably initiated. Well, maybe not initiated, but a lot of songwriters followed in her footsteps with this thing not having to make rhyming couplets. And she could tell a story in a different way. And for me, the clincher is, you know, she starts off for the first two thirds or three quarters of the song singing about what she observes. It's like a, 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 a an eye view, her, her point of view uh, as to what she sees with the woman who enters the, the, the restaurant, um, uh, greeting her allows to the proprietor. Um, and then she sort of takes herself away thinking about another time where she was um, having a, a romantic picnic with the object of her affection um, and you know she's taken away from herself this, the misery, potential misery of her work day and a uh, very rainy New York City day and then she realises oh well now I've got to piss off and catch the train and I know this is going to be very subjective because you say that it's trite and I just think it's clever and really beautiful and it comes back to what you were saying about the first album which was that it's deceptively simple. It sounds like anyone could do it, but there's some effort put into it. And I say the same thing about this very song. Yeah, well, I, mean, I can I can see your point, and and, and would, would agree with it. But it, it's perhaps too deceptively simple then, in that it's totally deceived me, <laughs> um, which probably says more about my simplicity than, than the songwriting. But yeah, and songs don't have to rhyme. Of course they don't. But you know, there's not a lot for me. There's not much more else there that indicates that you know. Perhaps it, it took her more than a couple of minutes to put the thing together, you know what I mean? Yeah, and see, that, that's where we get, because I really reckon this took her... Well, probably too, it's probably the longest song in the album to write, but, you know, um, you know I, you just, I just get the feeling, you know, that, that all she's... is all she's trying to say to me there is, you know, some days I have a bad day and wish I was somewhere else. Okay. You know, okay, Suzanne, we all do that. Oh, okay, well, so she's but she's, she's gone. She's gone. Okay, but the thing is, she's gone and taken um, an everyday thought that we might all have, or a lot of us may have, and she's just gone and put this really, to me, lovely spin on it. Um, yeah, so I really. If she and the, the thing is, I I, I think it, it it's it's not miserable like you make it out to be because you know she's ultimately she puts this nice little spin. You know, oh yeah, gosh, I've gone and. It's, it's rainy out there and I've gone and drank my coffee and oh, I, uh, my, my stockings have gotten wet but what I really wish for is that I was, I was... She's not just saying I wish I was somewhere else, she's recalling really fondly this beautiful time and I as a listener don't come away thinking, geez, I want to slash my wrists. I think that she has this very wistful moment so you end up, you end up feeling ultimately a little bit optimistic and think, well, you know, she's got to go to work, but you know, when she comes home and later, this beautiful moment can occur again and she will be with her loved one at some other stage and have to recreate that midnight picnic long before the rain began. Um, and, you know, so you, you walk away from it, well, at least I do anyway, ultimately feeling good, uh, rather than if she'd just gone and said, you know, geez, what a crappy day this is, it's raining, I've got to go to work, I've got to have a I've got to have an argument with my boss and my colleagues who I can't stand and they're going to sit around the, the water cooler talking shit about last night's TV. She doesn't do that. 
it's it's more an observational thing which um it, it's like the the song equivalent of a i don't know a film like local hero I, I don't know why i pulled that out because that's just my favorite slice of life film it's a film where very little happens it's just about the the um uh, about you know these people in a village who have you know, got a bit of money waved at them and how it potentially changes their life if they're going to sell this village until someone puts their hand up and says oh no i don't think i want to sell this sell my part of the village but it's really a slice of life type film not much happens and there's kids you know not a it's not a story it's just thoughts from suzanne vega's morning or her character's morning and, and i don't see that as any less valid than telling telling a story with a you know, beginning middle and end yeah but i'm not i'm not saying it's not valid i mean just really ultimately it, it didn't work for me mm. um and I, it, I think maybe just the arrangement of it as well it it, it doesn't it doesn't sit together well for me mm. which is probably what she's trying to do yep um <clears throat> and, and, and the annoying, really, really annoying little catchy bit at the end. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I can see where that... She's trying to capture. Maybe so that's really what she's what it's about. But, you know, for me, um, you said, you know, it's not miserable. It's not it's, it's not miserable slash your wrists. You don't come away thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to neck myself. But you maybe you know, there's a point where you think, come away thinking, well... God, if I meet Suzanne Vega, I'll have a few things to say to her about that. <laughs> None of them good. All right. Well, let's go on to uh, the next song, which I think is one of the two songs on the album that you do have something good to say about. And uh, that's Luca, um, which really was a surprisingly huge hit because I don't think I can count on, you know, my, uh, on my hand how many songs are about... Um, uh, child abuse, and furthermore, child child abuse with uh, a major key melody. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a weird one, isn't it? It's a very positive sounding song about a very negative subject. And, you know, I mean, just I wonder, to, I wonder to, if it was because of that major key that's what that's what sold it. If this been, you know, in, in a in a minor key, or you know, been a lot more the music had been in a lot more in adherence to. Um, subject matter whether uh, it would have sucked. Oh, chances are no. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for me, it's a, it's, a, it's a really, really brilliant song, you know, musically, lyrically, and, and it's funny how, you know, from my point of view, she can put one of her probably greatest songs right next to one of her most awful, but, you know, that's, that's her prerogative. But no, this, the, the Luca song is, again, it's one of these ones I don't know why it works. But it works. You know, it's an absolutely appalling subject, but she treats it in a very sort of understanding, compassionate kind of a way, because it's, it's not about the subject, it's about the kid. I think what makes the song work... With I think what makes the song lyrically work for me is that she's put herself into the shoes of the protagonist. She's not, she's not singing this in the third person. I don't think it would have worked but she's singing this in the first person and for me that's why it would, because she's she's gone and sat down and she's obviously thought about it and um you know probably sadly she knew someone like that um but she's gone and put herself in the character's shoes and she's you know saying as luca this is how i view my life um and you know luca's gone and 
worked out his strategy, well, they only hit until you cry. So I better, better get that over and done with, and I'm not going to argue with them anymore, and then they'll stop. Um, and and uh, you know, it's, it's another one of those songs which, as I mentioned before, you know, the, the major key with the really, really dark subject matter. Uh, and there are some songwriters who do that very, very well. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, that's what I think makes this, this uh, just absolutely perfect work. But, but just amazing to me that not only did it work artistically, but it worked you know, commercially for it. This is, this is huge. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, that, that, I just because it sounds like a, if you don't listen to it, and you know, let's face it, most people are not really listening to it when they hear it on popular music radio. You know, um, they're not listening to the lyrics, but you know, it sounds, it just sounds like a, a, you know, a fun pop song. You know, you know, I, I, I think, I think that would be true for a lot of songs, but because the lyric here is a very straightforward song, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing Bob Dylan-ish about it. It's not even anything remotely Suzanne Vega-ish about it, if I might put it like that. You know, this is uh, there's nothing obscure about it. Look, it's very straightforward. I like to think that people actually did pay attention to the lyric, if for no other reason, because it was thrown into their face. She obviously wanted people to care for Lucas' plight, so there wasn't going to be any metaphors there wasn't going to be anything um anything subtle about it this is really when it comes out as subtle as a sledgehammer we know that this kid is getting beat up and he's telling us how he deals with it um so i, I think people actually did listen to it which really makes it all the more incredible that people took it to their hearts yeah i that again you know that that's testimony to her skill then as a as a songwriter to take something like that and make it work so well even though the subject matter is just you know it's horrible mm-hmm. mm. all right so um actually so, uh, before i go to the next song i think the um uh the other part i've got a note uh note written down here uh that um yeah coming back to this major key melody thing um it also reminds me even though it's not really a song about uh, child abuse, but it sort of reminds me in a way of Weddings, Parties, Anything uh, song, Father's Day, which was their one really big hit here uh, in Australia. If you're in America, I urge you to search that song out. Uh, but you know, the song Father's Day was, you know, saying that the protagonist was uh, a divorced father who, you know, he's, he's, um, he's living, living in a, in a home with um, with a bunch of other displaced fathers, uh, he's divorced from divorced from his wife, and they had obviously had a pretty bad breakup. But um, the one thing that he looks forward to in his week is the time that he spends with his child. So once again, a really very sad subject matter, but um, but with this insanely catchy pop melody. Um, I'm, I'm a sucker. I love it when when songwriters do that. Yeah, yeah, it just works, doesn't it? Mm. All right, so the next song. I tell you what, probably to keep this um, uh, podcast from getting too too nasty and acrimonious, we might just sort of go through uh, a few songs. We won't maybe go track by track through the album, but we'll go through maybe 
know, three or four more songs. Um, what? So, is there another song besides um, Tom's Diner that really you hated with a passion, or did you hate them all with a passion? Um, that was the only one I really, really hated. Um, I like Gypsy. Yep. All right, well, we'll come to Gypsy in a moment. Um, um, the rest of them just really did nothing for me at all. You melodically, know, melodically dull. Melodically dull. Just yeah, okay, fair enough. You know, it's 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 not unpleasant. You know, I'm I'm not gonna I wouldn't switch it off, but it doesn't want me to invest. I don't want to invest any time in it. Mm. Um, and the ones that the ones that did draw me in a little bit was um, you know, that the, the, they just got a bit too lyrically overbearing really mm. um i think part of part of what it is is um when i checked out you know a bit of background on the the album there's a the couple of songs uh well, i'm trying to remember which i think actually Jesse and uh luca yep. are the two are the two that were written by her only the rest of the songs on the album are co-written uh, that may be right. Um, uh, let me have a look. Uh, yeah, yeah, yep, that seems to be the case. Yep. Uh, some of the songs were also... Um, oh, no, Calypso. 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 Oh. And, and uh, sorry, Tom's Diner was also written by herself. Yeah, okay. But, yeah, but uh, you know, I sort of... Um, there may be something there, and I, and I know that some of the songs were recorded were originally written a lot earlier than the the rest of the album. Yes. Um, Calypso or no, no, Gypsy, Gypsy was written um, was written considerably earlier, I think. So the, I mean, she maybe got caught up in some dynamic with co-writers or whatever that's that sort of called her away from her own, you know, her own her own stuff, which was mm. more evident on the first album. And also with the the song, the other one's being older, um, and she thought, well, well, I'll pull them out and stick them on this album. Writer's block or something going on, you know? Was she <laughs> and needing to get other people involved? Was she struggling? You know, had she, you know, had she got to a space where she had nothing left, but the record company were pressing her to get something out, kind of. No, well, okay, I'm I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll cover another couple of songs from the album just to. Um, well, I can't because this is all subjective. I can't prove anything. Can't mm. prove you wrong, but um, I don't only mildly disagree with you. I strongly, vehemently disagree <laughs> with you. But let's just keep things on a friendly, even keel for the moment, and we will talk about the other song that you really like, Gypsy. Now, um, uh, I saw a really great TV show um, that I think someone sent me by DVD or an episode called Songwriter's Circle, where the idea was they got three songwriters on a stage and each songwriter in turn would play one of their songs and do a little bit of a story as to the, the narrative, how it came to be, and you know, the other two songwriters may or may not perform with them. Um, and on the edition that Suzanne Vega was, she had, I don't know, a couple of hack songwriters, you may have heard of them, Richard Thompson and Loudon Wainwright. Uh, Neither of them ever wrote anything good. No, no, never. Um, but um, yeah, so in it, she um, she goes on to to uh, say that uh, Gypsy was a dedication to a crush she had as a teenager. She uh, met this 
fellow from Liverpool while um, while she was supervising a, a, a summer camp. And um, at the camp's end, she said, she, uh, she went to New York City, he went to Liverpool. She gave him her heart, he gave her his bandana. Uh, um, and in, in the songwriter's circle performance, um, some uh, uh, very beautiful, very tasty, sort of like extra little uh, textural playing made by, uh, by Richard Thompson all over the song. It really was quite lovely. Um, so, um, so yeah, that's, that's the background behind the story of the song. So tell me, what is it that grabs you about uh, Gypsy? I, uh, again, it just the the melody, the, the the music just really worked. It just you know it just got me. It got me where some of the stuff on our first album did. Mm. Um, I, I don't I don't know, but there, there's something that sounds sort of Scottish in there. Some of the almost traditional Scottish music in there somewhere. Mm. It's not in the instrumentation. I think it's just in the, the progressions and, and the way it seems to fit together. But. Um, and again, and some of the lyrics. I mean, I, I love, I love the chorus. Um, I really love the chorus or the refrain. I suppose if we're being singer-songwritery about it. Um, Hold me like a baby that will not fall asleep. Curl me up inside of you and let me hear that you. Let me hear you through the, through the heat. Oh, I can't read my own handwriting. Yeah, well, that's that's just yeah. That just that just says a lot, really, doesn't it? <laughs> what it's all about, you know. Um, but I, I, I think it was just it was just written in a way that was at the right level of, of pretension for me <laughs> you know which again says more about me than it does about than it does about Suzanne Vega um, I could just I could just identify with with the way she decided to with the metaphors and the the way she decided to be poetic mm. uh, Again, it's not a song that rhymes all the way through, and you know, neither it should if she doesn't want it to. But it just, it just fits, it just fits together, and I don't know, it just, talk, it just talks to something in, in my experience, or you know, some, somewhere in, in my head, anyway. Well, possibly where it works for you, this is something that really did happen to her. This is something that she had really felt at the time that she'd written the song, and uh, maybe you know, you see the sincerity in it all, how heartfelt it was. Yeah, I think that could be that could be very true. Then that she's actually writing about something real rather than trying to write songs about tales of brave Ulysses or you know whatever in somewhere else on the album. All right, well, uh, let's speak about Calypso then. Um, <laughs> I got about to be honest with you, I got about halfway through it and skipped it on. Um, oh no! So you haven't even really listened to it, have you, Jeff? I don't know. I can't <laughs> myself to listen to that. So, any song that opens up with my name is Calypso. I mean, sorry, no. I'm, I, I, I was, it was on a loser for me to start with. And you know, what's the line? Something about hands of raining water or something. What the fuck does that mean? But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, maybe showing more about my uh, lack of understanding than than her skill or. or or uh, as, a, as a songwriter, I mean, let's face it, she's a way better songwriter than I'm ever capable of coming close to. Well, we, we agree on that. Oh, you, you know, in the Tom's Diner, you said, you know, everybody would think, oh, I could write that. You know, no, no, I couldn't, not even close. No, exactly. You know, um, yeah. Well, let's, let's just talk about you know, maybe uh, one or two other songs. Um, 
So yeah, I, I, I want to talk about Calypso and possibly everything that you disliked about it. I really loved about it. I mean, look, I confess um, my knowledge of uh, the Odyssey is, is, I won't even say next to nothing. It is nothing. I've not read Homer's The Odyssey, um, but I was aware that this was um, meant to be referring to that. Um, and Calypso is a goddess that rescues uh, Odysseus from uh, from drowning. Now, as I said, I've not read it, so I feel unqualified to uh, make much of a comment about it from a literary point. But um, I still feel that she does paint a beautiful picture here. Uh, my name is Calypso. My garden overflows, thick and wild and hidden in the sweetness there that grows. My hair blows long as I sing into the wind. I tell of nights where I could taste the salt on his skin. I mean, that's you know, the Really, that's, that's about lust. Jeff, rock and roll, pop. All the best songs are about lust. You know, what's to not like about that? Um, again, it just, no, it just doesn't work. Sorry, you know, I, yeah. I can, I've got, I've just called, I've pulled up the lyrics in front of me here. And mm. yeah, for me, they work better as a poem that I, I read. Yeah? Yeah. I, 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 I realised that as you were as you read out the piece there, I thought, mm. yeah, that actually I, I like that as a piece of writing. Yes, but um, you don't think she, you don't think it, it can be set properly to a melody. I, I just don't. Well, not the way she's done it. I, I, I mean, again, she's done it better than I could, obviously. But <laughs> you know, um, maybe maybe she's maybe she's uh, maybe she's spoiled a good poem by setting it to music. Um, and I, I'm, I'm having realised that, I'm going to go back and, and pull out the lyrics of, of each of the songs and, and look at them as poems and see see if that works. Well, look, ultimately... If that does work, then I'll maybe go back to the to the album again. Well, look, ultimately, you know, working as a song or working as poetry, for me, it, it, well, it does work as a whole complete music lyrics package. But, um, but you know, I, I really do like the lyric here and you know, the, the story in which... Okay, admittedly, she's not in possession of this. is you know, based on, uh, you know, based on the Odyssey, which you know, once again I haven't read, but I like the idea behind this, where uh, Calypso um, offers Odysseus eternal life, living with her in paradise. But no, he's got a wife and family over the sea, and he's got to face his mortality. But he'd rather be with them than in this paradise. And, um, I mean, really, okay, you know, you can look at that pretty straight, or but you know, you can still attach that to your own life. You know, is it is having the best of everything? Is having too much of everything what we really want, or are we? You know, can we be satisfied with you know, ordinary, everyday pleasures, even knowing that you know, they won't be there forever? But it's what we identify with. Do we want to have chocolate every day for the rest of our lives, or are we? You know, quite happy to you know, have it occasionally and, and you know, live on uh, on uh, Brussels sprouts and cauliflower and steak and orange juice. You know. Well, it could be. Or it could be. I'm not sure Suzanne would see my interpretation the same way, but you know, if she wants to come on the show, I'd be more than happy to have her uh, tell me I'm wrong. No, as long as she doesn't sing Tom's name. Um, <laughs> I'm just just reading it again and, and listening to what you were saying. Maybe she's talking about the plight of the being the other woman. 
other woman. Yeah, yeah, well, she's she's singing it. Uh, the protagonist in the song is the other woman, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and how, how bad it is for her when, when she's got to let him go, but she's got to let him go because that's the right thing to do. I don't know, I think we're definitely going to have to get Suzanne off. Yeah, I might have to, um, I might have to get hold of, uh, my good friend and uh, podcasting colleague Michael Persh to see if he can snag an interview with Suzanne Baker because he just seems to get interviews with everyone and I ask him, how do you do it? And he says, I ask. Um, <laughs> That's good away. So huh? really, if anyone, if anyone I know has got a chance of doing it, it's, it's Michael, so I have to bring that up with him. Um, and what else do we want to talk about? Um, uh, I'll, I'll bring up one more song. As I said, I'm not going to go through the whole album seeing as we're in such severe disagreement. Although, as I said, you know, having opposing sides is a good thing. But um, if I'm just going to say, yep, great, you're going to say, no, it's fuck. Um, you can't go <laughs> no, on like that. You can't go on like that all night. agree with one of us. <laughs> um, so, what? yeah, okay, the, an, another song that I'll um, bring up uh, from what would have been inside one of the vinyl albums. Um, song called In the Eye and um, really it sounds like it was inspired by a moment in a book or a film and essentially this song is in the first person singing to someone if you kill me I'll personally see to it that I will fuck up your conscience Um, and really I mean if only the Kevin Spacey character in um, in American, I'm, lo- I'm I'm getting old. I can't remember. You know the uh, American something. We're you know, not doing re- with the titles here tonight, are we? Oh, look, I'm, I'm oh, I don't know. I'm getting old. Anyway, someone out there will know what I'm talking about. But you know, his character is viewing from heaven his last day on earth. Um, and if you if if you've not seen the film, then. Just go and take the headphones off for a few seconds. <laughs> right, he's shot. Uh, and um, but, you know, if his character had thought to uh, say, right, well, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna haunt your conscience for the rest of your life. But that's not where that goes. But it really, this song does sound like it belongs in a film. Well, it's been, it's been based on something, a moment from a book. Um, and um, it doesn't sound, there's nothing metaphorical, and it's not a long song, so there's no lengthy, oh, lengthy, lengthy lyrical explanations of how the protagonist will assault the attacker's guilt. But I just think it's quite, uh, uh, I don't want to use the word nice, but it's sort of quite a clever moment. Um, I will not run, I will not hide, um, and I will look you in the eye. And. Um, yeah, I, I just I, I, I found that clever. Rather than telling the song from um, from the perspective of oh God, I'm going to die. What am I going to do? It's right. I'm looking you in the eye. You you kill me, right? Well, you know you haven't heard the last of me. And you know, it's it's it really sounds like it's come out of a book, but I think it's still a clever moment, nevertheless. Yeah, I mean, I see what you mean. There is a sort of cinematic moment to it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Again, not so again. Looking at it as a as a poem or as a piece of writing, I, again, I think, yeah, that's really good. I like that. So I think I'm getting to the more to the heart of what I didn't like about the album. I think it was, I think it was the music. I think, it, you know, I think it was the, the musicality of it. It just 
it just didn't work. I don't know if it's if it was too. Maybe it's a production. Maybe the production. Maybe it's just too bland, too quiet. I will say that the album certainly has a sheen and a slickness, which mm. isn't really present on uh, Lenny Kay's production of uh, the first album. Um, and so I, I don't know now whether to recommend 99.9 Fahrenheit Degrees to you or not, because that that certainly is production-wise a million miles from the first album. But the songs stripped stripped back. I don't think are that far removed. Mm. From uh, from the first album, maybe you know, it might not be a bad thing to go to these um, uh, these three albums that she's where she's gone and reinterpreted the uh, the original seven or eight albums that she's recorded because um, you might find uh, as without having listened to it, she might actually take some of those uh, industrial sounds uh, or in fact indeed the slickness that's on the production on Solitude Standing um, and uh, make it. A little bit more simplistic, or, or simply a little bit more simple. Yeah, um, I think you're right. I think I think the the word that you I think you've hit the nail on the head there. From I think it's slickness. I think it's yeah. I think it's maybe overdone from from, from my liking. All right. You well, know, in, in that case, I'd, I'd definitely say avoid the third album, Days of Open Hand, like the plague. <laughs> um, once again, there's some great songwriting ideas on that album, but yeah, that that. That album definitely does suffer from production problems, and that's probably why she decided to do the real about turn and get Mitchell Froome in for um, for uh, the next couple of albums. And once again, that'll be a matter of taste, and you might not like that any more than you like the slickness of Solitude Standing, but um, it's undeniably different. There's a, the songs are far more compressed in their production, um, but um, for me, the songwriting still shines, and I'm if I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure that those albums are, the, the songs are all her own work, no collaborations there. Oh, sounds good. I'll, yeah, I'm, 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 I don't think I'm done with Suzanne Vega yet. I'm not I'm, I'm not going to stick at the, just the first album and leave it at that. I mean, I think there's, there's definitely too much of value in there that I need to do. I need to maybe be a bit more open-minded and go and have another listen. Especially in, in, in line with what you've what you've said, I've got a, a bit of a new, different appreciation, a different angle on it, and uh, maybe I'll find a way in. Oh, my life is meaning. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, give right. I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. Either that, or I'll end up hating it even more. Okay, well, that's that's fine and fair. No, it's not. What am I saying that for? Uh, all right, um, you're listening to Love That Album podcast with uh, Morris and Jeff. Now, normally at this stage, I'll be winding the show up. However, miracle of miracles, I've had a little bit of listener feedback um, in the way of emails. No one sent me uh, any MP3 uh, audio feedback, although um, uh, my good uh, friend and uh, podcasting colleague, Dr. Zom, did that a few episodes back. But uh, no, this one, I've got a couple of emails, which I will read out. Um, and the first one is from a fellow called Eric. He goes by the name Eric Reanimator. Uh, he's in the States and he's gone and written to me thus. Um, uh, hello, I'm a new listener to the podcast. Dr. Zom talking about it on Silver and Gold brought me to the cast. I like the format, which seems to me to be like a GGTMC, that stands for Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, or OTC, that stands for Outside the Cinema. Uh, it seems like one of those shows, but for music. Um, I haven't listened to all of your episodes yet, but I'm wondering if you could mention some of your likes and dislikes are. Um, 
As for me, I'm a big fan of most music. I always say that I like music with energy, soul, or some kind of hook. I could give a whole list of my favourites, but I'm just going to throw out two of my faves from the 90s. The Forbidden Dimensions, Somebody Down There Likes Me, which next to no one has heard of. Uh, no, that's his words, not my words. Uh, and The Screaming Trees, Dust. Uh, from the episodes that I've heard, it sounds like you do like the off-kilter 70s singer-songwriters like Tom Waits, Warren Zevon, and their ilk. Any thoughts on Stan Ridgway, who I think is their 80s heir? If there was one of his albums that I could say I love, it's the big heat from the late 80s. Uh, lastly, any thoughts on the neo-Bruce Springsteen movement by bands like The Hold Steady, Titus Andronicus, and The Gaslight Anthem? Eric Reanimator. Thanks very much for that um, uh, for that email, Eric. There's um, certainly a lot of stuff that you've brought up there. Uh, so let's tackle some of the questions that you've um, brought up. Uh, likes and dislikes, my own likes and dislikes. My God, there's a whole episode in that. Um, suffice to say that I guess my tastes are broader than maybe what I've alluded to in uh, the uh, Love That Album episodes that we've done till now. Um, and I've been a lifelong classical music fan, lifelong uh, bop and post-bop uh, jazz fan, um, as well as swing. Um, uh, I guess some of the more pop-punky sort of stuff, although we're going to be tackling uh, some something in that line in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, but more of that later. I open up the paper. Yeah, and I, I, you, you mentioned you like energy, uh, music with uh, energy and soul. And I'm a big fan of uh, the '60s soul movement. So you know, you stacks Atlantics um, and the like. Uh, and, and I guess a lot of the garage, uh, garage pop music of the '60s, which I mentioned before, the uh, Nuggets box set is one of my most prized collections of music and for a long while there I was listening I think back in the early 90s almost exclusively to uh, uh, a lot of blues music you know basically if the, if the artist had the name Blind Boy in front of it I listened to it um, but um, nowadays I guess I'm listening a lot more to uh, three-part harmony pop um, and songwritery type fellows as you very astutely worked out um, I'm going to throw that same question back to you Jeff Overall, I mean, you've gone and you know, joined me on some of these shows talking about albums that we love and in this case didn't quite love. But um, uh, you've already gone alluded in previous shows you know, that you're a big fan of, uh, what's that group? The Horrible, Horrible Seagulls, was it? Yeah, The Horrible Crows. Oh, Crows. Yeah, I knew it was a bird of some sort. The Horrible Crows and Bruce Springsteen. So overall... What were your what were your big likes? Um, my big likes are, are I guess, rock rock and roll music, basically. You know, to, is the is the thread. You know, going back to the the Beatles and the Stones and following on that sort of central rock and roll thread right through. Um, I do like I do like artists that have something to say. Mm. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I, although there, you know, there's a time and a place for you know, I love you, you love me, la la la, and great songs as well, but. Uh, you know, or, or let's have a dance party kind of songs. There's, there's room for those too, but um, I do like a lot of sort of country-influenced music. Um, I can't be doing the 
sort of what you know our American friends would, would call country and western sort of you know that kind of you know my doggy died in San Antonio kind of stuff <laughs> uh, you know and all, all, all the all the Jesus and all that kind of stuff well we uh, previously covered uh, Steve Earle's El Corazon album yeah I mean you know I'm a big fan of Steve Earle big fan of Jackson Brown I should probably not mention John Hyatt because usually the podcasting software collapses if we mention oh no we've conked out <laughs> oh no we haven't no that's okay uh, yeah you know artists artists in in that kind of area um but then you know I, I do have some i do have my own sort of guilty secrets and i quite like simon garfunkel for instance you know and there's a lot of other stuff there i mean if you look on my ipod it, it, it ranges widely you know and to, to say what's my taste in music, like like yourself, I could be here for a couple of days boring the, the life out of everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the, the two albums that he mentions that he really loves, and uh, The Forbidden Dimension, yeah, news to me, never heard of them, but, um, <laughs> but I, might, I might have to go search that out. Now, the other album that he mentioned, um, Dust by the Screaming Trees, it's not an album I've heard, um, but I do have a Screaming Trees compilation called Ocean of Confusion. Now, I believe there are two uh, compilations and, and maybe two distinct periods in um, the career of the Screaming Trees. I think there was the uh, the first, I mean, I guess they were an indie band the whole way through, but there was the really super indie. And then when they sort of um, became a little bit more melodically poppy uh, and the Ocean of Confusion album covers that later period and um, I wouldn't say I've listened to it lots and lots, but it is an album I really like, and um, I'm pretty sure The Screaming Trees led by a guy called Mark Lanigan. Um, they visited in Australia, I think a few times, played in Melbourne at uh, the Prince of Wales Hotel, if I recall. Um, so I, I don't really know a whole lot about their history, but I have this one compilation, as I said, and I really like that. So um, but I know if you reckon, uh, if, if Eric, if you reckon that Dust is um, uh, a great album in its own right, then they'll be able to uh, search that one out. What else? Uh, Thoughts on Stan Ridgway? No. I think, I I vaguely recall he might have stopped me if if I'm completely off kilter on this, but there was a, I remember a pop song called Mexican Radio. Um, I don't remember the name of the band, but I vaguely recall that Stan Ridgway was associated with that band. And that was a song I rather liked, but that was sort of something of a one-hit wonder here. So, don't know much else about him, I'm afraid. But um, but uh, Eric highly recommends his album, The Big Heat. So uh, that might be one that I've got to um, head on to. So his last question is: I'm throwing it completely into your court, Jeff. He says, "Any thoughts on the neo Bruce Springsteen movement?" Inverted commas. Who's inverted commas? The hold steady. Titus Andronicus and the Gaslight Anthem. I um, hand the floor to you. No, I wasn't sure if it, I'm not sure if it's a movement, but I guess maybe it is. If people are calling it a movement, then more power to it. I see. Um, good, good music, good music by them, particularly the Gaslight Anthem. Um, I think they're a fantastic band. I think um, Brian Fallon has a tremendous talent. Um, he's shown that he can he can do it. You know, rocking it big with a band. He can do it quietly, intimately with just him and his guitar. Um, and he's got something to say, you know. He's got he's, he's got a lot to say, and uh, you know, says it in a way. He says it 
in a similar way that, that Springsteen does, you know, and I just wanted to say that about Stan Ridgway. Uh, oh, yes. The only thing I can think of by Stan Ridgway was the absolutely atrocious song Camouflage. I don't know if that was a hit in Australia. It was, um, a, it was a. If it was, it. I blinked and missed it. Yeah, check it out on check it out on YouTube, and and if you can listen all the way through, I'll be very surprised. <laughs> oh, it might be in the same bag as the Suzanne Vega album. Um, it's 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 a bit makes Suzanne Vega look like the greatest thing since the greatest thing, you know. <laughs> all right. Um, so, any thoughts on those other two bands, though? Uh, Sort of coming back to the Neo Springsteen movement, the Hold Steady or Titus Andronicus, you heard of either of them? And uh, the Hold Steady, I'm, I'm f- familiar with their familiar with their work, but not not enormously. Yeah, good band. I, I keep they're on the list to you know to get to and listen to a bit more. Titus Andronicus, no, I haven't haven't listened to any of, of their stuff. Mm. I just want you know, while we were doing stuff, that stuff that I like, I just want to put a plug in for the the, the recent uh, compilation of Bob Dylan songs by a lot of very interesting artists that's come out. Oh yes, um, I don't think I've called Chimes of Freedom. Oh and yes, there's a whole bunch of you know really diverse artists on there, um, all, all recording you know a Bob Dylan song that obviously means something to them. Mm. Um, Paul Rogers, Nils Lofgren, Billy Bragg, Elvis Costello, uh, Jackson Brown, Gaslight Anthem, even people like Lenny Kravitz, Queens of the Stone Age. Um, there's a whole, whole lot on, on there, and, and a band that I, I, I just started listening to off the back of hearing about this compilation, the wonderfully named Airborne Toxic Event. Excuse me, is that the name of is that the, the, name of the band? The band is called the Airborne Toxic Event. Well. They do a version of Boots of Spanish Leather, um, but I checked out a couple of their albums, and you know, well worth a listen. Mm. I, I often find that a lot of those, uh, I mean, this is a tribute album, um, multi-artist tribute album. I often find a lot of them, certainly when they came out like in a in, in, in you know, rapid succession in the 90s, a lot of them were atrocious. Um, I mean, I obviously understand that you know a lot of these artists they have strong feelings about the, the songwriters that influenced them, and they want to pay tribute to them in their own way. And you know, I don't doubt their motivation, but um, uh, and, and it's also true that there's no point in reinterpreting a song um, the same way. Otherwise, you might as well just listen to the original. But some of these reinterpretations that I've heard in the past just really didn't work. In fact, I think probably one, the, the one album in that line that I can truly say just about every track worked, and even this one had one song that just didn't work, was um, an album called Till the Night Is Gone. It was a tribute to the songwriting of Doc Pomus, who um, I, I presume, you know, People out there have, you know, know of Doc Thomas, but if you don't, you sure to tell know his songs. Um, and, you know, he uh, he'd written for um, uh, a lot of the artists, great artists of the fifties, including uh, Elvis Presley and um, Dion. Uh, a lot of a lot of uh, really wonderful interpretations of this. So uh, Ray Charles. So um, on this album, it opens up with Los Lobos doing a really down and dirty version of Lonely Avenue. Um, 
and I'm going to have to say this quickly so we don't drop out John Hyatt doing Mess of Blues. He's better than the Elvis version, I've got to tell you that. It's absolutely rocking, fantastic. Um, uh, uh, Sean Colvin um, does a version of a song that I absolutely despise to this day in its original incarnation, and that's Elvis Presley's Viva Las Vegas. Now, the, the original Viva Las Vegas is this horrible, kitschy song, uh, quite fitting with what it's in tribute to, the city of Las Vegas, and apologies to anyone who lives in Las Vegas that might be downloading the podcast, but, you know, the song is supposed to convey, like it did in the film, you know, about, you know, going and gambling and, and drinking rich, exotic drinks and at the bar and fraternising with, you know, beautiful men and women, um... And, um, and it just all sounds so devil may care. But the music, we, we were speaking before in the Suzanne Vega album about, about Luca and you know, major key, minor, dark subject matter. Here, they've gone and done the opposite. They've gone and taken what sounds like it's supposed to be you know, a happy lyric about gambling and the excitement of Las Vegas. But she, she's gone and turned the music into, um, uh, a, I wouldn't say a dirge, but it's like, you know, it, it's very slow. There's a, a very mournful harmonica sound, and it sounds more like the ironic, sarcastic uh, <laughs> thoughts of someone left by a ditch in the road who's got barely got the shirt on their back after losing all their money in Las Vegas. And she turns this song completely around um, and, you know, Really, this is how it should have been done in the first place. Um, but I absolutely adore that. Um, so yeah, that's I've digressed somewhat, but that for me is um, one of the great examples of a multi-artist uh, tribute album to one artist or one songwriter. But generally, they more often than not don't work for me. But if you think this uh, Dylan one is worth uh, worth the time of day. Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely, definitely, definitely worth a listen. There's a lot of artists on there who are, yeah, very, very well worth listening to. Mm. Although I would, I would skip through uh, the Miley Cyrus contribution. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. from the ridiculous to the sublime, shall we? Uh, yeah. Oh, did I get that the wrong way around? Uh, yeah, I think you got that the wrong way around. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, sorry, and oh. Uh, Eric also sent a, a PS email saying, by the by, have you ever heard the song Igloo by the Screaming Tribesman, a killer song that more people should hear? See you later, Eric Reanimator. Um, now, Screaming Tribesman are a band originally, I think, from Brisbane. Um, Eric's from the States, so um, it's uh, interesting that he knew of them, but I, apparently the Screaming Tribesman must have had some sort of uh, following on the college radio circuit in the States. Um, but once again, a band I never really caught on to. Um, but you know, being here in uh, Melbourne with a, a station like Three Triple R, um, they were they were played on Triple R, and certainly ads for their gigs were often mentioned on tri on Triple R, where they wouldn't be mentioned on commercial radio. So I was certainly well aware of their existence. But um, I'm gonna have to uh, chase up this song Igloo, see if I can find it on YouTube and um, see. Uh, 
what animates Eric Reanimator about that song. Yeah, um, yeah, good suggestions from from Eric there. Mm-hmm. And the other email from someone called Matt Hunt, uh, saying, "Hi Morris, I just downloaded your podcast and have listened to your programs programs about Cold Chisel and the Doors. It's fantastic and very interesting. Great work, Matt Hunt. Thank you very much, Matt. Much appreciated." Um, how much did you pay him? Um, Xno on the A pay, Jeff. We'll <laughs> talk about this off air. Uh, no, thank you, uh, Matt, who I've never met in my life. No, seriously, I, I, Matt, I don't know how you found the show, but um, many thanks for your uh, for your feedback, and um, glad you enjoy it. Um, if there's anyone out there who, um, and this will be a really interesting episode to get some feedback on because. Um, yeah, I, I'm really a big fan of Solitude Standing. Jeff absolutely hates it. What do you think out there, uh, dear listener? Is this an album that you love, hate, feel ambivalent about? Um, please write, let me know. Um, so that's probably now time to uh, do the, the, the housekeeping thing. If um, uh, you want to send me some feedback, and I'd dearly love some more, uh, then email me at rrrkitchen. It's all one word, rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. You can either send me a written email or record an MP3 of you speaking and I'll play it on the show. Um, if you uh, want to find a multitude of ways to download the show, you can either um, look up Love That Album, all one word, in iTunes uh, in the search engine. You'll find us there. Or if you go to Love That Album blogspot.com you can either listen to the show streaming there or download it directly from the website either way is uh, valid and good Um, and I think that's about all the self promotion I've got Um, I'd like to give uh, a bit of thanks and plug to uh, some of my fellow podcasters who've uh, been very kind and uh, promoted my show on theirs in particular, I want to make mention of the following shows, Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide, hosted by Michael Persh. Funnily enough, from Adelaide, you would have heard Michael conversing with me about the tubes on the previous episode of Love That Album. Also, The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, GTTMC, hosted by Big William and The Samurai, doing their thing about genre-specific cinema. Uh, Silver and Gold, hosted by Dr. Zom and Pickleloaf. Dr. Zom will be on the show with me in a few weeks again. Uh, and they're also doing the genre cinema thing, but also with an emphasis on wrestling and boobies. And finally, Paleo Cinema, hosted by Terry Frost. Uh, Terry records his great show out of my hometown of Melbourne. Jeff, anything else you want to mention? Um, I hope I haven't upset too many people with my uh, my own personal opinions about Suzanne Vega. No, no, no. Well, that's we, we don't want to have. I agree. I agree. I agree. Otherwise, it gets a bit boring. Um, of course, you're wrong, but you're entitled to your own stupid opinion. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, anyone out there who wants to uh, write and uh, give us their opinions, if you agree with Jeff or myself, we'd love to hear from you. Um, so, uh, Jeff, um, we'll be um, having you on again in a few weeks, and you've chosen. I think the next album that uh, you and I will be covering together, which is um, Social Distortion. 
Yeah, we're going to do Social Distortion, uh, the Hard Times and Nursery Rhymes album. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so we'll probably tackle that one sometime, late February, early March, I think. Sounds good. All right, terrific. Thanks very much for your time, Jeff. No and, problem, um, Hope I haven't caused any trouble at home. No, no, not at all. <laughs> all right, so uh, you're listening, you've been listening to uh, Love That Album, and uh, we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. See you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.